0: I last week had mentioned that we see a progression of behold I'm going to come I will come I'm standing at the door and now chapter 4 verse 1 the door is opened and he basically said on the end of the last church here am I stand at the door and knock and therefore it's our job to open that door in a sense. And when that door is opened, we're going to see a glimpse into heaven here that is uh, remarkable to see what is going to unfold. So let's just look at the very first two words, first of all, here in chapter 4. Well, actually, even before I do that, let me just give you a rundown of what you're going to see. When this door is open, you're going to see a courtroom scene. You're going to see a judge That is coming in and he is about to take his seat and he is about to read the verdict and carry out judgment on the earth. And so if you keep that picture in mind, that's going to be helpful. The other thing is the chiastic structure that we had talked about before. Just to give you a little picture of this chiastic structure in chapter 4, you can see where it kind of meets in the middle. And so uh, I've kind of color coded it again here in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, the glory of the Lord, and he's on his throne. But you go to the end of the chapter, you see as, again the glory of the Lord and him in his majesty. Then you start at the beginning of chapter 4, you see in verses 4 through 6, there's 24 elders. The glory of the throne room is also kind of being enlightened there. In 410, you see the 24 elders and their casting their crowns down before the Lord on the throne. Then you see in green, in Revelation four, six through eight, there's four living creatures. Revelation four, verse nine, the four creatures are there again by the throne. Uh, So then you see full of eyes in chapter four, verse six, as well as uh, chapter four, verse eight, eyes. It all just kind of gets closer and closer again. And then, the central axis that we see here are the four living creatures, okay? Now, we'll talk about those as we get there, but just wanted to show you that chiastic structure for chapter four. So now we get to the first two words after these things, three words. My, I looked here and it says after this. New King James, after these things. That's an important timing that you have to look at that after what well after the churches that we just talked about so what we're seeing is is that after these four or these seven churches this is supposed to take place if those churches are indeed pictures of literal churches as well as time periods through history at the time period of history that I think we may be in here for the last church all of a sudden something quickly is going to happen and there's going to be a, the judge is going to start coming into his chambers. And we are getting very close to that here now. So it says, "I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven." And the first voice, what he means by the first voice is the one that we saw in chapter one, verse 10. Remember all of these things that we were seeing before. In chapter one verse 10, it said this, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see. And so it's the same person that when he was on the Lord's day, that he, this same voice like a trumpet. It says, Which I heard was like a trumpet again, speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So, I have here underneath that a verse from Daniel. Again, what I've said before is that people say you can't understand the book of Revelation. Well, then you can't understand the rest of the Bible because it's all there. Look what Daniel said here in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. You're going to see that happening here. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. You're going to see these wheels as you're going to see the cherubim. You see lightning coming from the throne, fire coming from the throne. It says, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So Daniel is helping us understand what we're seeing here. The same description, hair like, you know, white like wool. That's what we saw in chapter 1. We're seeing the same person described in chapter 1 coming in, about to take his seat, about to open some scrolls. And Daniel is telling us it's a courtroom. So it's pretty easy then for us to say what you're seeing is a courtroom as we continue through this chapter. Okay? Um, The other thing I want you to see is Without a Jewish understanding, you're missing some of the picture here. There is a strong illusion to the temple here. Remember, and this is going to be a big theme for tonight, that the temple, the tabernacle, both of them were a model and picture of what heaven was. Do you know when the, the doors of the temple were opened every morning, they blew the trumpets? Now we see a door standing open and trumpets are being blown. Any Jew would have picked up on this. They would, oh, the doors are open, the trumpets are blowing. Okay, so um, this is just what it says in the Mishnah, uh, Jewish records. It says every day there were one and twenty soundings of a trumpet in the temple, three at the opening of the doors, and we're going to talk about that three here coming up. Nine at the daily morning sacrifice, and nine at the daily evening sacrifice so the three when the temple doors open up are going to be important that I'll talk about later I don't know if I'm gonna get to it or not but real quick it's going to be the rooster crow remember before you hear the uh, the rooster crow three times Peter would deny Jesus that rooster crow was not a cockle doodle doo it was the trumpet and they called that area, and I'll show you pictures later, of where they blew the trumpet, the rooster crow. And we have found that in archaeology. Not only that, but Jewish records tell us that, uh, those of you who went to Israel with me, Ron even said, they, chickens and roosters, they were unclean. They were not allowed in Jerusalem. So the closest place that you could have chickens in them were like in Bethany and whatnot. There was a way, and so the rooster crow was these trumpets blowing at the morning, the, the opening of the doors. Okay, but again, this is a Jewish understanding. All the Jews get that. We just think cockle doodle do. Okay, so um, which, by the way, I don't know if I announced it, but I do have another trip to Israel scheduled now for November of 2023 so put that kind of on the back of your mind as well so anyway it's kind of exciting to see i mean it doesn't seem like much behold i see a door standing open to us that's like yeah but you're you're about to peer into heaven you're about to peer into the temple in a sense and so this door standing open is kind of important even though it doesn't seem like much um as far as the voice sounding like a trumpet, might be significant to what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we see the Lord comes back, when? At the sound of a trumpet, the last trumpet. We'll talk about that when we get to those things later, but just to kind of put that in your mind for now. Um, And again then, as far as defining after this, what does that mean? I believe it's the times of the churches And one other thing that's important that we really have to look at that really forms a lot of the doctrines that we have as far as the book of Revelation goes is from these three words here, come up here. That voice like a trumpet said to him, come up here. So John is being caught up in some ecstatic ecstasy state of spiritualness and he is taken up. Now, you often hear that the word rapture is not in Scripture. Well, that is somewhat true and somewhat not true. In your English Bibles, you will not see the word rapture. But in the Latin Vulgate, this word here is literally raptura, which means to be caught up. So, the Latin of this come up here was that John was caught up probably much like what we saw Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, he went and he baptized him and then he was just taken and set down somewhere else. He was caught away. That kind of thing is, is what we're seeing here with this word. Now, that doesn't mean that just because it's caught up that now you think, oh, rapture. Or else it would be like saying, well, the rapture just took place. I think it's simply saying this, that the Lord caught him up to see what was behind this door, what's behind the curtain, and he's going to see that. But a lot of the pre-trib rapture people will say this, that you will not see, as I mentioned last week, the word church used again. And now we see this come up here, a rapture takes place, and so that the church is now gone. But he wasn't talking to the churches, he was talking to John. So it seems a little out of context to me to use this as the support for that. Okay, But just to let you know that that's kind of one of the areas where they get it, the pre-trib rapture taking place right there. So as far as this door standing open, we see the symbolism, we see what the Jews would see. But I also want you to see what Scripture says about doors being opened as well. And in John chapter 10, verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is the door. In the temple, He was the gate. There was one way into the tabernacle. There's one way into heaven. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Jesus is the door. He says, I am the door. He who enters through Me has eternal life. So, Jesus is being revealed. A door is opened. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ here. It goes on, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is a door you want to get behind. The only way you're getting in Two, what you're about to see is through Jesus, that open door. Without Jesus, you are going to be discussed down here on earth in chapter 16 and, and in, even in chapter 6, okay? but you want to see what's in this throne room, and you've got to get through the door to get there. Matthew 25:10. while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in, With him to the wedding, and the door was shut. This is a parable talking about when the Lord comes back, right? And there's a wedding banquet that we'll read about in Revelation 19. That door is open in order for people to get to heaven, but there's a day coming that door will be shut, and you don't get to go into that tabernacle, temple, heaven again. So the time is short on life. Whether the Lord comes back in the next year, seven, or a thousand, makes no difference. You have typically 50 to 80 years lifespan. That's all you get. I don't care when it is in the timeline of history. That's short. Your time is short. And we need to make sure that you're striving to get through that door. So... What we might be seeing here, a door is opened, is a last call. It's only going to be open for a short period of time, and then the door will be shut. And when that door is shut, it's too late. Verse uh, 2, focusing in immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So immediately, John is in the Spirit, because he was caught up. I do believe when the rapture takes place, which by the way, everybody should believe in a rapture. The the argument isn't whether there's a rapture, the argument is whether it's before the trib, in the middle of the trib, after the trib, you know, those kind of things. But everybody should believe in a rapture. You should all be rapturists. All that is, is all of a sudden, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. Your body will be changed. The mortal is going to take on immortality That's what happens here. Immediately, John is in the spirit. What that looks like exactly, I don't know. But he sees what's behind the door. A throne set in heaven. When you got in the door of the tabernacle, guess what you got to go to? There was the holy place and the most holy place. And the most holy place was the throne room of God. The Ark of the Covenant. Okay, And there's one sitting on it. This is why it was called the mercy seat in the tabernacle. It is where God would meet with the people. Well, look at some of the verses here we see dealing with this. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Or Romans 14.10, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. Where is He seated? In the temple. This heavenly picture is the heavenly temple. The whole thing that the earthly temple was a model of. Jeremiah 17.12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Again, that tabernacle. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Jeremiah 3.17, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Jerusalem is now called the throne. The tabernacle, the mercy seat, all of that, but we also see Jerusalem seems to be the place where this is going to happen. Which is interesting because we see the new Jerusalem that's going to come out of heaven at the end of Revelation. So there's a reason that the Bible says God's eyes are always on Jerusalem. That he says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, I believe that we are to pray for the peace of the physical Jerusalem that you know of right now, but I also think that there's a spiritual aspect to that. But nonetheless, those of you who went to Israel, I think can attest there's something about that. When you go there, you feel like you're home. I don't know what it is, but most people who go there will tell you that same thing. That I'm, I, I don't like traveling. I, I don't like going places. Uh, I'm a very boring person. And even though I'm a very boring person, when I get to Israel, it is the only place that I travel to that I feel, <sighs> wow, just a peace that overcomes me. And yeah, I, I place, don't know why. Not very it, it, and it is. It's a place that's not very peaceful, but yet you feel peaceful. There is something about it. So anyway, um, point being, there is an allusion to the temple here as well, and Jerusalem was the housing spot of that tabernacle and temple. Verse 3, And he who sat there was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, being a man, these stones don't normally mean much to me. So I got some pictures here for you just in case. But part of the problem is you get different colors of different stones as well. But the brilliance of these stones is being compared to the brilliance of God as well, a purity, a preciousness, something very valuable. And you're going to see a similar picture in Revelation chapter 21, verse 11, where it says this, It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So when we see jasper here, I'm going to show you a picture of Jasper, but when we get to chapter 21, we see it's a certain kind of Jasper. Clear as crystal. Clear as the sky itself, basically. Um, The new Jerusalem that's going to come out of heaven is going to have 12 foundations, and these 12 foundations are made up of precious stones. The same three mentioned here are going to be part of those 12. Why 12 foundations? Why 12 jewels? Well, this is exactly what the priest wore on the ephod. There was a jewel, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And the high priest would wear that. Remember, Jesus is our high priest. And so Jesus, in a sense, always has those stones or the tribes of Israel over his heart. Now, we talked eons ago in relation to this while I don't believe fully in the two house theory I think there's some truth to it and the two house idea is this that remember you had God called people he called Israel only Israel he didn't call the Philistines he didn't call any of the rest of the world Israel then was divided up into Israel and Judah the northern and the southern tribes The northern tribes were captured by Assyria and assimilated into the world. They became known, some of them became known as Samaritans. The Jews didn't even call them believers or Jews. They detested them. A lot of them became Assyrians and everything else. So you had the other two main tribes, Benjamin and Judah, that became known as the southern tribe or Judah. The other ten were called Ephraim. This was prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 48 verse 19 when Ephraim is being blessed by his father, he says Ephraim will become a multitude of nations, literally a multitude of goyim, literally a multitude of Gentiles. Ephraim became Gentiles. So when Jesus comes back, when he comes this first time, who does he come for? The world? Some might say, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. But what Jesus' own words said is, I have come only, only for the lost sheep of Israel. Who are the lost sheep of Israel? Those lost ten tribes who became Gentiles, of which most of you here are Gentiles. So the two-house theory says, because God has put it on your heart to understand these things and to know the Lord, more than likely you are a Jew. Just from one of those lost tribes. And God opened it up to the Gentiles because He was opening up to gather His sheep back into the pasture. I think there's some truth to that, but I can't get all on board with it because we have people like Rahab, Ruth was a Moabitess. God has opened it up to others. So I don't believe that just because you're a believer, you must be one of those. But I do think that there is a lot of that going on, and God is calling His chosen people back. and. That means he has always had those 12 stones over his heart. He has had a heart for Israel, a heart for his lost people, the lost tribes of Israel. He wants you back. He wants you to recognize him as the Messiah, and he's calling you. And so it's ever before his heart. Um, Isaiah 54 also basically predicted that these stones were going to be used. Um, I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, We'll discuss that in chapter 21 when we get to the New Jerusalem, but it's in Isaiah 54, verses 11 and 12. Now, uh, each of these 12 stones, I kind of have it up here, if you can see it. Surprisingly, I think you can actually see it better than I can now. Um, what's neat about it is you have the tabernacle in the center. When the Israelites camped, they camped north, south, east, and west. And you can see up here, I've kind of highlighted them in black, great color to highlight in, but you can see those. there was one on three sides. These three stones that are mentioned, are covering three sides of that tabernacle. At least one of the tribes in in there, okay? Ezekiel chapter one, verses 27 through 28. When we see the throne of God, we see a rainbow. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, speaking of this judge again, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and bright or brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You see this, the throne of God, the rainbow is there because of the glory of God and notice here that that's what we see in revelation as well because we're seeing the throne room of god and so here is emerald emeralds are typically a green rock but imagine the most pure emerald polished shiny beautiful and precious and so here is emerald just to give you an idea that there is a rainbow like an emerald around the throne. And here we see Sardis, the other one mentioned. And again, Benjamin. So here you can see on the breastplate, there were the three, I've got them arrows there showing you the three stones for those three tribes. So at this point, these are just the three that are mentioned. We'll see all 12 later on in chapter 21 but right now this is what John is seeing right at the the the, right next to the throne and that is why I showed you this tabernacle he has them right next to the throne okay so again uh, the temple we're seeing a picture of, of a heavenly temple here here is a picture of Jasper a couple of different you've got red Jasper then you've got this other kind of more mixed. There's even zebra jasper that's black and white. How do we know which one it is? Well, again, it seems that we're, it's clear. There is a clear jasper I'll show you here in a moment. But just imagine what this must look like, this throne. I mean, it must be absolutely beautiful and mesmerizing. The rainbow always around God's throne. And it said the rainbow is around, or some will say encircles the throne. I find that interesting because there's really only one place you can see a rainbow that's in a circle. You have to be in the air. I've seen circle rainbows when I've flown. Uh, If you get really high in a skyscraper, sometimes you can get... A circular thing. So the very fact that this rainbow is encircling the throne tells you it's up in the air. But when we think rainbow, don't just think of the beauty. We've lost that in our society today. And the homosexual community has tried to steal that. But a rainbow is a promise of the covenant that God gave to Noah. And it is ever before him. He will not forget. Though we forget, and we think, oh, look at the cool rainbow. Isn't that pretty? And we don't but we should be thanking God every time you see a rainbow. Don't let the world steal what that means, and don't let it just become art. It's a covenant. And that covenant stands for eternity, and it's always before the throne of God. Here is Jasper, a clear Jasper. Uh, it is most rare as well so again the most pure the most rare the beauty but just kind of wanted to show you what that looked like now i'm going to sidetrack a little bit here from these verses for a moment because i also want you to see as far as this rainbow that satan wants to mimic absolutely everything that god does jesus rose from the dead What are we going to see later in Revelation? I'm sure you're familiar, but there's going to be an Antichrist that looks as if he had been killed but comes back to life. He is even going to mimic the resurrection. Everything. We've talked about there's a Holy Spirit, but in the churches today, I am telling you that there is a mimicking unholy spirit in churches today that is not The Holy Spirit. We have to always be on our guard because the devil doesn't come looking evil. He's going to come disguised as an angel. And not just an angel, but an angel of light. Beauty. I want to show you a little bit when it comes to Islam, how Satan tries to mimic even what's going on here. Let me show you a little bit here, uh, just real brief history. When Muhammad was 40 years old in 610 AD, he was thinking in a cave on Mount Hira here. And that mountain is just outside of Mecca, which is basically Islam is supposed to go to Mecca. Kind of a, uh, what do you call it? Your pilgrimage, kind of holy pilgrimage that you're supposed to take. Well, he was visited by the angel Gabriel supposedly. This is what they teach. and this is the same angel that appears to Mary, that appears to Daniel, but also just add to that list to Muhammad. Okay Now I don't believe that that was who this was, but this is what they teach. Well, from that on that time on, he had many different visitations by this angel. These angels would give him... The message of where we get the Quran. And so Muhammad is viewed as like the last and greatest prophet. But they just see Jesus as another prophet, but Muhammad is even better. Okay? What's interesting is what the Quran describes this angel as looking like. The angel is described as an angel of light and as beautiful as a peacock. The same colors and precious stones, glittering jewels, it says. Ezekiel 28, verse 13, look what it says of Satan himself. Satan was adorned with precious stones. It says, you walked among the fiery stones among the garden of Eden. On the day that they were prepared, you were created. You can go read Ezekiel 28. There's a long uh, section that deals with that. And so Satan was beautiful. This angel that appears to Muhammad is described as beautiful like a peacock in glittering jewels. Well, that's what we see as a throne room of God. Revelation 9.1 says that this Satan is a fallen star. The Quran calls Allah... The Lord of Star of Sirius. He is a, a, a star. That's what they call Allah. Satan is called the morning star. Jesus is called the morning star. So Allah being called a star must be one of those two. And I'll tell you, it's not Jesus. What, what's the Sirius? The star Sirius is just a really bright, it's the name of one of the stars, a really, really bright star there at night. Satellite radio. Yeah, that too. So Muhammad then goes to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? It's his holy city, right? Again, mimicking everything. And he gets to talk with Moses, Abraham, and Jesus there. And one night he is even taken uh, to heaven by a ladder. And some horses another night, I think, take him. But bottom line is, a ladder to heaven. We see, I think it's in John, Jesus is described as that ladder that goes to heaven. (coughs) So, when you go to Jerusalem, you have the Dome of the Rock. This Muslim, it's not really a mosque, but it's pretty much a mosque, that is on where the Temple Mount used to be. And it was built in 691 A.D. The reason it's built there is because they say this is where Muhammad ascended to heaven. Remember what the Bible says of Satan? I will ascend above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. Satan wants to not only ascend above God but he wants to be in Jerusalem on the mount of assembly he's mimicking literally everything so wasn't that also the spot where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac yes it is believed to be the the very spot that Abraham sacrificed Isaac or the threshing floor that when David bought that from uh what was his name now left me who is it no that's a vineyard uh anyway when when david bought the threshing floor this is a threshing floor that's up there and so inside the dome of the rock there's this big natural rock area there now years ago i actually was able to go in there you can't go in there anymore and you go down some steps to get to this natural rock, and there's a hole inside, which, again, a threshing floor, what they would do is throw the chaff up, the chaff would get blown away, the wheat would fall to the ground, and they'd throw the wheat down into the hole. So it is definitely a threshing floor. Now, a lot of interesting things in regards to this. Uh, we've kind of mentioned it before. I know in Israel I talked about it, but the Avon Hashatia. this is called by the Jews... The Avon Hashatia stone, the foundation stone, and it is also called the pierced stone because of the hole. There are holes in it, and that stone they believe is where Jacob. You know, I don't believe it is, but this is what they teach. Jacob, when he was fleeing, laid down at Bethel put a stone under his head and that stone is the Avon Hashetia and it is from that stone that the temple was built they say. Okay? Again, that's Bethel, this is Jerusalem, I don't, I, but this is what they teach. What's amazing about it though is the teaching that they do teach about that stone, they see that stone as the Messiah. That stone is the Messiah, it is called the pierced, it is called the the foundation stone, and it is this stone that they are talking about. Was that where Jacob saw the vision of the ladder? Yes. It's funny that... Yep. Saw Jacob saw that vision of the ladder and that's also what we see here too. So all of these parallels are just astounding. That's not no, that's where he wrestled with God. Oh, okay. Wouldn't Jerusalem have Yes, Salem, but not Jerusalem, yeah. But it was the location was the same. Yes, yep. That's why the only way that this could be through a miraculous thing, just like what we see the stone that the Israelites received water from throughout 40 years wandering in the desert, no matter where they went, that stone was there. A miraculous thing. We know that that sounds stupid and crazy that's what they teach that that stone was everywhere they went so I used to think well can you just imagine a stone following them through the desert you know being drugged behind them or what but you read first corinthians 10 it says they all drank from the same spiritual rock and they ate the same spiritual food but it says they ate the same spiritual food and they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them it says it right there in the new testament but Nonetheless, so maybe I'll leave the possibility of miracles, but otherwise it just doesn't make sense that this is that stone. But nonetheless, this is what they teach. Yeah. You said it before that a lot of times when angels show up in the Bible, they always say, do not be afraid. Like, they're not the most attractive things in the world. And then you've got Islam. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. has got to be a good thing. Yeah. It's very good point because... Anytime we see any godly person meet a good angel, boom, you fall as if dead. The holiness is just too much for unholiness to be around. We, we can't even grasp the holiness of God in this sinful flesh of ours. So, yeah. I don't have time to go through all of this. I just want it, my goal for you tonight is to see the comparison. The Antichrist. Very well, could come out of Islam. Um, there's a false prophet, there's the dragon, and there's an antichrist. Maybe one out of the Catholic Church, one out of Islam, which is interesting that they have paired up quite well in the last few years. I'll show you a picture of the Pope kissing the Quran. Um, So they have become very united. So it's possible that the Catholic Church, Islam, are going to be both involved here in end times. What the Bible says the Antichrist is supposed to do here on the left side, he is going to be the head of a one world government. This is what scripture says. He's going to lead a one world religion. Everybody has to bow down to him basically. He's gonna make a seven year treaty with the Jews. In the middle of that treaty, he's gonna break the treaty. He's gonna rule for about seven years. Um, He is going to be coming on a white horse, which you're going to see in Revelation chapter 6, the first seal, the beginning of the apocalypse. He is going to conquer the Holy Land. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He is going to rule from Jerusalem. And he is going to target and persecute Christians and Jews. In Islam, they have what is called their 12th Imam. The... Madi, everything, and I mean everything that I just said, is in the Quran about their 12th Imam. So literally everything the Bible says about the Antichrist, the Quran says about, about their 12th Imam. We see this Antichrist as a bad thing. They see the Imam as a good thing. It's their Messiah, in a sense. So, you can see on the right side, everything is identical. The Antichrist is going to change the laws, set times and seasons. We see that Islam, every time they come, what do they do? They implement, they change the laws, seasons, the set times. They have Sharia law. Um, there is a false prophet that is going to come along with him. Well, this twelfth Imam also raises up uh, a false prophet. And believe it or not, do you know where he comes from? This is in the Quran. He rises up from the earth out of a mud pit. Revelation talks about a beast that comes up out of the earth and a beast that comes up out of the sea. But literally... This guy is supposed to come up out of a mud pit. Okay? It's all in the Quran. My my DVD on Islam, I talk about these. I give you the Quran verses and read it, but I don't want to go through all that tonight. Um, The Antichrist is given supernatural powers. We also see this Mahdi is given supernatural powers from Allah, and he is going to perform miracles and signs and wonders, just like the Antichrist is supposed to do. And... um, again, persecution, all of these things, it's identical. So, the fact that we see Satan looking like a peacock, or I should say, glittering with jewels, as Ezekiel says, and here we see all as described as a peacock glittering with jewels is also a very strong parallel. And as we go through the book of Revelation, something to keep in the back of your mind. Okay? Point is, is our Messiah what the Bible describes is the Muslim antichrist. And our antichrist is the Muslim Messiah. It is just absolutely flip-flopped. Islam teaches that when Jesus returns, which they think he's going to return to, by the way. He's just a prophet, not the savior of the world. When Jesus returns, this is quote, he is going to break the cross. You stupid Christians, you shouldn't have been following me. Kill swine and abolish jizah, which is a tax that uh, we, we don't see it now in our country But basically, when Islam would attack a country and take over, if you agreed with certain things and could tolerate certain things, you could pay a tax and then your life was spared. And so what he's saying is he's going to get rid of this tax. There will be no tax you can pay to survive. You are going to be wiped off of the face of the earth. And all religions are going to be taken care of except for one, and that's the Islam. But the people of the book, Christians and Jews, are the ones that are the worst offenders that they go after and have been throughout history. Why? Why does Islam care so much about Christians and Jews, not so much about Hindus and you know, uh, Buddhists and so on? Because there's a spiritual war, and Satan knows this is true. He doesn't care if you're worshiping another false god. He cares if you worship the true god. Yahweh, Yeshua. When the Mahdi comes, he's supposed to bring in and usher in a seven-year period of peace. And again, we know that in the midst of that, there's not going to be peace. In Islam, they go to Mecca. And if you are a good Muslim, one of the things you're supposed to do at least one time in your lifetime, if you can afford it, is travel there and you have to march around this black stone seven times you're all supposed to go and I, I think like get on your knees and go someplace but then also walk up a mountain there's a number of things that you do when you travel here now what's interesting is that this black stone is worship they go and they all get and they they used to go and touch it and all of that kind of stuff so it became black from all the oil being you know touched We see that in Jerusalem and Israel when you go through the Catholic churches. All the people touching the Catholics and kissing the, the stones and all that garbage. Well, look what it says in Revelation 13, verse 15. Just jumping ahead a little bit to kind of keep the theme. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. This is the Antichrist. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. We will discuss that more later, but for now, let me show you what Islam teaches. Allah will raise up the stone on the day of judgment. It will have two eyes with which it will see and a tongue which it talks with. It will give witness in favor of everyone who touched it in truth. Many years ago, the black stone was whiter than milk. It was only later that it became black as it absorbed the sins of of those who touched it. All of these parallels are just weird. Revelation 9.1, the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Revelation 8.10, and the third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters and it's going to turn them bitter. Look at what, we know that this is the Antichrist. Look at what uh, the Quran teaches here. Surah 24. Surah is just a chapter, basically, of the Quran. Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. A likeness of his light is as a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp is in a glass, and the glass is, as it were, a brightly shining star. So this is how the Quran speaks of Allah. This is how the Bible seems to speak of Allah, or the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 11, speaking of this Antichrist, neither shall he regard the God of his father, nor the desire of women, some say, is he going to be gay, we'll talk about that in a moment, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall, be, shall he honor the God of forces. In a God whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. There's a lot of things in here, but just to highlight some of the big ones, the desire of women. In Islam, women have no rights. magnify himself above all. That's what they do. There is only one and you can have no other. Religion. They honor the God of forces. How does Islam spread? Through jihad, war, killing. They divide the land. It is Islam that has divided the land of Jerusalem, of Israel. Um, All of these things... So, Allah also has many names, one of which, and I don't know how to pronounce this, but you can see it there, but the translation means the most proud one. In the Quran, it says that you can deceive, that it's okay for Islam and Muslims to deceive as long as it's for the goal of overcoming the enemy. And so, they have a prayer in Islam that says... And I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact words, but part of the quote is, "Make me a deceiver because Allah is a deceiver of all deceivers." And so this idea of peace is not not reality, okay? And we see that that's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to come to deceive. Remember that's the Antichrist is going to come and there will be miracles and signs in the heavens and to deceive even the elect if that were possible. As I said, changing set times and seasons um, removes kings and sets up kings. Sharia law uh, is being spread throughout the world like it hasn't been for centuries. And in places like Minneapolis and uh, places that I used to travel years ago, it's overcome with Islamic teachings now. Mm-hmm. You, you see it everywhere. So, anyway. How, is, how does the, law, or whatever, go with the and the not being compatible? Well, part of the Sharia law, the set times and seasons, I think in some of that has to do with the festivals of God. And you're not allowed to do those. So they say we're going to do Ramadan. Okay, you don't do tabernacles, you don't do those kind of things. And so Sabbath, you get rid of the Sabbath, that kind of thing too. So could go along that way. Revelation 20, verse 4, you're going to see later, it's going to talk about those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. I remember reading that and thinking that's a very archaic way of killing people. Why would you do that? Well, there is one religion today who kills Jews and Christians by beheading kind of interesting because this is the imam muhammad adam el sheikh at the whatever mosque in uh, falls church virginia this is what he said to usa today beheadings are not mentioned in the quran at all and then Yavon haddad a professor at the center for muslim christian understanding at georgetown university has agreed with the above imam and he added there is absolutely nothing in islam that justifies cutting off a person's head Deceiver of all deceivers, make me a deceiver. That is an absolute lie. We've seen it on TV, on the beaches and around the world, them doing that, let alone what the Quran actually says. Surah 533, the punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his messengers and strive with might and main for mischief through the land is this execution by beheading or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides, or exile from the land? That is their disgrace in this world, and a heavy punishment is theirs in the hereafter. Or in eight twelve, I will instill terror into the hearts of the unbelievers, smite ye above their necks, and smite all their fingertips off. Or forty-seven, therefore, when ye meet the unbelievers, strike off their heads. 9.123, O ye who believe, murder those of the disbelievers and let them find harshness in you. It does say it. How about 2.191, Kill them wherever you find them. Drive them out you drove you, wherever they drove you out. 2.193, Fight them on until there is no more tumult and religion becomes that of Allah. 929, fight those who do not believe in God and the last day. And by God, they mean Allah there. And fight the people of the book, which is Christians and Jews, who do not accept the religion of truth, they mean Islam, until they pay tribute, that's that tax, by hand, being inferior. Chapter 8, verse 17, it's not ye who slew them, it is God. When thou threwest a handful of dust, it was not thy act, but God's. And so, anyway... You get the idea. I believe Islam is going to be tied into this. We could maybe, I'll maybe mention it as we go further. But for now, I just want you to see this description of the throne of God is described by the Quran for Allah and these angels. And I think it's Satan. So Satan is even trying to mimic this. All right, back to Revelation, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. On the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So... We see what the throne looks like. Now, you go outside of the throne. You see 24 elders are seated there. They've got crowns on their head. There's lightning coming out from the throne. A Jew would have had something brought to mind here as well. The Sanhedrin. Although there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin, you had the Nasi that would sit in the middle, and then they would sit all around Interestingly, the 24, more looking at it from a biblical perspective, in the temple. Remember, you go through the door of Jesus, what do you see? The throne of God. We're going to talk about this more later, but there's also the the bronze basin. It was called the Great Sea. You will see what looks like a sea of glass before the throne. Perfect description. The priests were divided up into 20 four different uh, times of service. There were also 24 stations of service in the temple. And so it's interesting that, again, the temple being a picture of heaven, in heaven there are 24 seats, 24 elders. We'll talk a little bit more about them, but nonetheless, that's what you see at the tabernacle in the temple on earth as well. 24 divisions. 24 stations, and now 24 elders it's a grand here. Jury. It is the grand jury. There you go. Exactly. So, um, the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne there in verse 5. We see the Holy Spirit is often you know, viewed as fire as well. Um, there was always to be fire burning in the temple on earth or the tabernacle, either one. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit coming as fire in the, uh, during Pentecost. So it seems like the Spirit, which was also the lampstands, you know, among the churches, the Spirit of God was among the churches, you might say. The other interesting thing to me, I'm not going to get into too great a detail here, but uh, the voices, look what comes from the throne. Proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices. When you went to Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given, those are the things that we see. Voices as well. I'm not going to teach this again, but if you recall, I taught about speaking of tongues, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the flames of fire. That wasn't just at Pentecost, it was at Mount excuse me, Mount Sinai as well. In Mount Sinai, it literally says in Scripture that there were voices and flames that went out. The the flames of fire went out from the voices to the 70 nations of the earth, they say. But the Bible does say that. Uh, Go listen to my teaching on Patreon that talks about uh, tongues of fire, basically. So, who are the saints here? We've got 24 thrones, and on the thrones, 24 elders, and then we're going to see beyond that there's going to be some saints, okay, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the Matthew verse here, look in chapter 19, verse 28, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, seems to be what we're getting a glimpse of here, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. What is being described right here? You who have followed me, he's speaking to the apostles, the disciples, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at least 12 of these, 24, seem to be the 12 disciples. Including Judas? No, I think Judas was replaced by Paul. Some say Math- Mattathias, uh, 19. Um, not by Matthew 19, no, but Judas didn't make it. The scriptures are pretty clear about that. He's just kind of saying, you who followed me here, but there will be 12. Now we see that the disciples pick some other people, Matt- Mattathias is one of them. And they cast lots, and the lot goes to him. And so a lot of people think he replaces them. But I find it interesting that we don't find anything about him ever again. I think that was man's choice. And that the disciples said, okay, we got to replace Judas. Let's see. We'll take you and you. All right, Lord, now you decide about the, between our choices. Shortly after that, we see Paul... Saul riding on the road to Damascus, and God says, I have chosen you to be my servant. And I think God chose Paul. So, but anyway, Matthew 3.11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That spirit of God is, is just, it's there. That comes out from the throne of God, from the presence of God, because again, God is one. Later in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, we're going to see these thrones again. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast in his image, nor had received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. 2 Timothy 2.11 talks about this throne. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him he's not just talking to the disciples there you are going to reign with so the 12 disciples get 12 of those thrones I think there's going to be probably 12 tribes of Israel 12 of the heads of the tribes of Israel as well or the other 12 but then you've got saints outside of this and you too are going to be reigning 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You will be part of that. Chapter 4, verse 4, a couple other highlights. They were clothed in white robes, crowns of gold. Um, The white robes, that was predicted back in chapter 3. One of the churches, to he who overcomes, I'm going to give you white robes. Um, probably then that linen cloth that is explained in chapter 19, verse 8 of Revelation, which says the white robes are the righteous acts of the saints. That what you do in this world does matter, but you have to do it through Christ. The crown, the word crown here is a stephanos. It's, uh, it's basically a, a victor's crown. You have overcome Okay, not, not a ruling, but a victor's crown. Verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Okay, Remember, the temple before it, as I said, was this bronze basin of water called the sea. That's what it's called in scripture there in Chronicles, I believe. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. We're not going to get time to talk about this too much, but I want to show you Ezekiel 1, verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice. Here in Revelation, it says like a sea of glass. Ezekiel described it as ice. Would pretty much look the same. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai, what does he describe it as? Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. So if you, I've done read many commentaries on Revelation, and as you do this, and they talk about all of this, they spiritualize it away to where it, it's not even real. It just, it's just a symbol of something, but it's not real. It's not literal. Moses, in, in the book of Exodus, that was a historical book, and he is describing what he saw it was real. And so Ezekiel, Exodus, Revelation are all saying the exact same thing. It must be literal as well. Now these creatures are the cherubim. Um, I'm not gonna get as I said time to talk about the cherubim, but I just went to look for some pictures to maybe give you a visual of what we've described here so far tonight. And so here's a few of them. You've got the rainbow, like emerald. You have the four living creatures, the cherub there. You've got 24 elders sitting around. You've got the lampstands. You've got the sapphire clear as the sky itself. Lightning coming from the throne. But again, this is the picture you see in the temple on earth. If you could open up, you had the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. You had smoke and whatnot, bright light that would come out from it. You had the cherub that were around the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that were on top of it there. You had the menorah in front, the lampstand. You also had the altar of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It hasn't been described here, but it will be later. So that incense altar is there as well. You also had the manna, the word of God. Well, Jesus is the manna. He's there. And so we're seeing all this part of the tabernacle, but a heavenly view of it. Here's another one. I like this one a little bit better. I kind of put these in my uh, ascending order of liking. Again, you know, the the elders with their crowns, um, the, the four living creatures, lightning coming forth, uh, the rainbow. And my favorite one here with this copyrighted picture is this here. I did order the book actually for this. It's called Revelation Illustrated. And so I'm gonna kind of use that, so just a little plug for that. There's something about that rainbow and the the emeralds, those that I like about this one. I, I also like the four living creatures, partly because of what we haven't had a chance to talk about tonight in the sense of the ox. They have four different faces. And we'll talk about that later. But here you also see the saints around the throne too, behind the elders. Here's the other thing. I love this. I'm not saying this is the throne of God, but if you've ever seen the Northern Lights, they are breathtaking. And if you look at the throne of God, and I see, when you see those northern lights, I think the throne of God. Now, by the way, do you know where the throne of God is? It's in the north. And you go, what? Dude, you're just making stuff up now. No, it says it in the scripture. Now, if you recall, when I talked about the stars, I did that presentation for you. The whole constellation, all the constellations of the north are our heavenly home, the pictures of that, that that displays. Go back and watch that if you never saw it. You have our heavenly home, the Big Dipper and all of that. But in Ezekiel or Isaiah, Satan says this, that he wanted to ascend above the stars of God, to ascend to the throne of God, and it says, "...in the north." Says it right in scripture. And then I thought, wow, and now we have northern lights that usually appear in the northern part. Again, I'm not saying this is what it is. It just reminds me of it. I like this visual. When you see the northern lights, it's the throne of God, just the brilliance of it just kind of coming through. Okay? Way I like to look at again. Not saying that's what it is, but I like to think about it that way. Just a couple more slides to finish up here. Hebrews 8, 4 and 5 is where it says that the tabernacle or temple is exactly, it's a shadow of what's in heaven. So what I've been telling you, I'm not making it up. That's what scripture says. So this is what you're seeing is the earthly tabernacle in heaven. When this door has been opened up, uh, the temple had an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. Again, the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and that is where God's presence is at. So, what you're seeing described is the most holy place, that inner sanctuary of the tabernacle right now. So, um, again, like I said, the 24 divisions of priests, the 24 elders. Here's the sea of glass. I don't like how they have this one laid out. Normally it's kind of in front up there. But that bronze sea uh, in verse 6, before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal, you have that sea in front of the tabernacle and temple. Interestingly here, here's a massive first century basin showing you the, the scale and size of what maybe Solomon's temple was like. And this is in the Vatican Museum. And this one here is not from a true God worship, but false God worship. So even in false God worship, that is being mimicked as well. So Satan loves to imitate and mimic everything. Um, Psalm 99.1, The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. Psalm 80.1. We're going to pick up next time with these cherub and describe what they are, what they look like what's the difference between a cherub and a seraph and those kind of things. But for now, that'll be it. So remember, next week, we will not um, meet here, but I am going to post something on Patreon and maybe Rumble on the tabernacle for next week so that you can maybe watch that and brush up on the tabernacle and see those comparisons of what we're reading and being uh, seen described here. Okay? So we'll close in prayer.